We're going to begin tonight's session with a quote from Frederick Douglass. We didn't get a chance to talk about the Douglass readings. I'm going to do what I can to try to fold them in when I see an opportunity because, one, he's one of my heroes along with Abraham Lincoln, among others, and two, because he had a lot to do with uh, the progress of black American political thought and activism, uh, both prior to, during, and after the Civil War, and for a good time after, almost reaching the dawn of the 20th century. He died, as I mentioned in an earlier session, uh, I think it was February of 1895. Um, So I'm going to quote from a page, uh, let's see, uh, from a reading that I don't think I had you guys read. It's an, uh, an essay he wrote in 1863 called The Present and Future of the Colored Race in America. And this will act as something of a segue from our discussion of the Civil War and Lincoln's statesmanship to 19th, uh, excuse me, 20th century considerations of the founding. Let me tell you something. Do you know that you have been deceived and cheated? You have been told that this government was intended from the beginning for white men and for white men exclusively. That the men who formed the Union and framed the Constitution designed the permanent exclusion of the colored people from the benefits of those institutions. Right. Can you guys think of one or two people that we talked about this week who made that argument? Douglas, Stephen Douglas, not Frederick Douglas, of course. <laughs> who else? Calhoun. Stevens. Who else? How about Dred Scott case? Chief Justice of the United States, right? Black, right? Black said no rights that the white man was bound to respect. Davis, Tawny, Yancey, William Lowndes Yancey, new biography just published on him uh, within the last month or so. Traitors at the South have propagated this statement while their copperhead echoes at the North have repeated the same. There never was a bolder or more wicked perversion of the truth of history. So far from this purpose was the mind and heart of your fathers that they desired and expected the abolition of slavery. They framed the Constitution plainly with the view to the speedy downfall of slavery. They carefully excluded from the Constitution any and every word which would lead to the belief that they meant it for persons of only one complexion. The Constitution, in its language and in its spirit, welcomes the black man to all the rights which it was intended to guarantee to any class of the American people. Its preamble tells us for whom and for what it was made. Uh, This is from a speech he delivered in 1863. Uh, And it was a belief of his that he came to not right out of the box. Um, It took him till about 1849 or 1850 to come to the opinion that the Constitution was a pro-liberty rather than a pro-slavery Constitution. And it was a conviction. Uh, These were principles that he held for the rest of his life. 45 years until uh, he died. Uh, The question for us today is, uh, is that same interpretation of the founding one that is held by other leading, uh, in particular, black political thinkers in the 20th century? We're going to be reading four in particular, right? Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and that's how he pronounced his name, not Du Bois, 
Du Bois, Mal uh, Malcolm X, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr. So uh, just one uh, kind of a question to have in the back of your minds, uh, is, is, this, is this spirit, or is this conviction of Frederick Douglass one that is carried through the 20th century? Is it one that informs the civil rights movement, uh, the many strains or streams that feed into it? Or in what way uh, does it change, if it does, or, or, or gets qualified as we make our way uh, into uh, the present? Uh, so, so much uh, for Douglas. Now let's look at uh, our readings proper for tonight. Um, we'll try to divide our time here half and half here. I had you read a few short readings from The Crisis, which was the uh, magazine or journal of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Uh, the editor, of course, most famously, uh, Du Bois. Right? Um, as I mentioned that, I'm going to now mention that we're not actually going to talk about those. <laughs> But I just am giving you that out there uh, by way of, of a segue here. Uh, what we have when the 20th century comes along, interestingly enough, is no single spokesperson for, uh, for blacks uh, in, a, in, in a way that uh, Frederick Douglass was and in a way that Booker T. Washington did at the turn of the century. Uh, in the 20th century, I think it's safe to say that instead of a particular leader, at least for the first half of that century, you had an organization. And that was the NAACP, founded in 1909. And so I just gave you those lead editorials from the first issue uh, to just give you a sign of kind of their announcement that they're here, and this is what they stand for, and this is what they're going to be uh, acting uh, towards. Um, I also have a pa uh, uh, an anthem, actually, by James Weldon Johnson. This is sometimes referred to as the Negro National Anthem. That's not the title he gave it. But uh, if you hear this song played, in fact, we did this, I think it was last year, last summer, in the master's program that we were teaching at Ashland University, um, I, had, uh, I had it played over the Ashbrook Center speakers, and one of our participants stood up and sang along with the anthem. That's how deep uh, this anthem, as opposed to our national anthem, resonated with at least one of our uh, teachers, one of our participants. Um, it was an anthem that was originally intended to be a speech given on Lincoln Day. And instead, uh, James Weldon Johnson, with his brother, composed a song. And I give you uh, the lyrics uh, for that. If any of you are interested, if you never heard it or think you haven't heard it, and you have a laptop computer later on, I can show you uh, the NPR website where you can hear four or five different versions of it. Uh, very moving song. Excuse me? No. <laughs> I don't mind singing it, but I won't sing it for you now. <laughs> uh, what I want to talk about in our short time tonight, at least for my portion, is uh, one of my current research interests, uh, a passage, a chapter from uh, Ralph Ellison's posthumously published novel, Juneteenth. If you can take that, uh, hand that out. It should say chapter 7 on it. Let's look at that uh, tonight. That should begin on page 439, please. Can I just ask a question? While sure. Um, Marcus Garvey is in the early, early part of 20s. He is in the 19, especially the 19, uh, especially 1920s. Okay. So he's not, you don't know, concern him about. I don't consider him a. A leader for the black community at that. Oh no, he was he was influential. I'm just saying. Um, 
grabs a certain portion, Malcolm X grabs a certain portion, we'll see that the modern civil rights movement grabs an even greater portion. Uh, there was no one person that most black Americans said, yes, that's our man. Our man. When it comes to the 1950s, you know, King comes on the rise, kind of on the heels of the Rosa Parks uh, a bus boycott, uh, his leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his, his leadership of the Montgomery Improvement Association, we're going to talk about that. Uh, that doesn't happen until the late 50s. During the decade of the 50s, the one black person most blacks looked up to was Thurgood Marshall. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we have Juan Williams speaking a Friday afternoon uh, about Thurgood Marshall, um, his leadership of the Legal Defense Fund for the NAACP uh, before he was appointed Solicitor General and uh, ultimately Associate Justice of the uh, Supreme Court. But yeah, Marcus Garvey, important figure. Uh, I use him in my Black American Politics class. Um, he's a peculiar figure in the sense that he's one of the few foreign observers of the American example, uh, of the American, excuse me, uh, regime that we give. You know, he emigrated uh, from Jamaica, uh, and there was a very sh- small window of opportunity that he had before he was deported <laughs> uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and th- there, there are important uh, statements that he makes that we go through, but given that we're only in D.C. for three days... Well, I just I had, wondered, I was wondering, sorry, I had the right time period, and I yeah. thought Malcolm X and he... Yeah, Marcus Garvey's on the heels of World War, the, the end of World War I, but especially 1922-23 is when he makes I, his, his peaks, as it were. I was curious how influential he was. Oh, very much so. I mean, if you want to talk about, a lot of people look at uh, the black power movement of the, the 1960s, the late 1960s, and say, wow, black pride, Marcus Garvey had him beat by decades. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Gar- what they call a Garveyite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Ralph Ellison. What, what should I say about Ralph Ellison? How, how many of you are not familiar with who Ralph Ellison uh, is? Uh, minority. Um, in 1952, he published his one novel while he was alive, Invisible Man. Not The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, but Invisible Man. It won the National Book Award, the first black author to win that award. Um, uh, I can't even even begin to describe what that book is about. <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, a coming-of-age story of someone a lot like Ralph Ellison, but in many ways not like Ralph Ellison, who grows up uh, in the West and sort of the South, attends a university a lot like Tuskegee Institute, uh, and then goes north for a number of reasons, and essentially grows up in this process. Uh, and it's about invisibility and in ways uh, that are obvious in terms of the, the color line as uh, both uh, Frederick Douglass and Du Bois puts it, uh, but in ways that I think uh, at least Ellison intended all human beings to see themselves in some sense as they relate to others as invisible, ways in which people see things that are not there when they look at other people, especially other people that for some reason or another they see it's different than them. Uh, this question of invisibility which is really a question about individuality. Um, that was a th- a, an abiding theme of, uh, theme of Ellison's. Well, Ralph Ellison was working on another novel. Uh, it was a novel that he was going to try to encapsulate America in. It turned into a saga. Uh, one critic said that uh, Ralph Ellison's novel, Juneteenth, uh, in, in the writing of it, he suffered not from writer's block, but from the opposite. Uh, his literary executor, John Callahan, found over 2,000 pages 
of manuscripts, uh, what turned out to be, it looked like it was going to be a three-part or three-volume saga. Uh, and uh, Ralph Elson, who, who died in 1994, his widow, Fanny, asked John Callahan, is there a beginning, middle, and an end to this thing? Is, it, is there enough there for us to publish? And he tried to make all 2,000 pages work, and he just couldn't. But he found that by looking at various manuscripts, that the various manuscripts that the middle portion, the second volume of the saga, uh, looked like it had received the most revision. Several of the chapters were actually published as short stories or as essays in, in, in journals. And so he uh, uh, and Fanny got together and said, you know what, yeah, I think this can hold together. There's a coherent plot here, uh, and it would be a, a you know, shame for people not to know uh, uh, that this is here. And so that was what was eventually published in 1999, I believe, as Juneteenth. Does anybody know what the word Juneteenth means or what it represents? Go ahead. Juneteenth, uh, celebration of the, the news being received in the southern states out of Texas about uh, the emancipation population. What was, uh, shall we say, odd or peculiar about this, the reception of this news in Galveston Bay, Texas? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when did Lincoln free the slaves in the South? January 1st, 1863. When did slaves in Galveston, Texas, learn about the Emancipation Proclamation? June 19th, 1865. Okay. Talk about better late than never, right? So Juneteenth actually fairly soon after became much more representative for blacks of emancipation in the United States than the original Jubilee Day of January 1st. January 1st was Jubilee, right? This is when Lincoln actually followed through. Right? He, he, he issued his preliminary emancipation proclamation in September 22, 1862, and there were waiting. Blacks were really waiting to see, is he going to follow through? Is he going to follow through? Churches held vigils. New Year's Eve, right? December 31st, 1862, waiting the following day for lightning to strike, i.e., to hear from the telegraph wires that Lincoln actually followed through and issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Fred Douglas writes about this, for example, waiting along with many other blacks uh, and fellow abolitionist whites to hear the news. It came through, and that was Emancipation Day for a while. But June 19th, uh, before the 20th century began, became much more uh, uh, close to the hearts of black Americans. And I think... One of the reasons why is encapsulated in this chapter, chapter 7 that Ellison uh, depicts for us here. And I guess, let me, ask, let me get us into this uh, chapter by asking the question, um, why, from what you've read in this chapter, do you think that June 19th, Juneteenth, replaced January 1st as the day of Jubilee for many black Americans? What is it about Juneteenth, as Ellison depicts it in this sermon, a celebration on Juneteenth. What is it that we learn about emancipation for blacks in the United States that would lead many blacks to think, you know what, June 19th, that one's actually a better commemoration of our freedom than January 1st. And, well, I was just going to comment on, on the words allusion of emancipation, mm -hmm. and that there's Good. some references throughout... Um, you know, we have illusion of emancipation on 116, on 118, um, how far we still have got to go. Um, so it's, it's a, 
and as we know about the emancipation, it's not like you know, you know, free and everyone just goes running. Um, so that it's a it's a, a, a legal thing, but it's not. It's not really a, a measure of social power. Okay, so in some sense it was a necessary but not sufficient act on the part of the government to provide true freedom to the formerly enslaved uh, black uh, American. Okay, good. Others? Go ahead. Well, well uh, when the sermon's being given, he's talking, uh, the preacher's talking about the struggles that the African American got through. It was almost synonymous with the war, like parallel almost, and kind of we become stronger, and we become stronger by waiting it out, and now this is the reward. Okay, so this, this idea of strength in the slave, I mean, Ellison was really uh, concerned about what we believed about black Americans as a result of how American history was typically taught. Uh, a pivotal book published, I, I think it was in the early 40s, uh, by Gunnar Myrdal, a Swedish uh, sociologist, um, called The American Dilemma. Any of you familiar with that? I think it was published in two volumes. Um, Ellison wrote a review of this book in 1944, and it was never published, but in the review, he points out some interesting things that Myrdal has observed, especially about uh, the race relations in the South and the conditions for black Americans in the South uh, that are, are somewhat on point. But he really, in the end, he... he, he, he criticizes Meyerdahl for missing something fundamental about the black American experience. For Meyerdahl, it seemed as if the Negro was only a mere consequence of what whites had done to them in this country. He did not seem to recognize very much agency in blacks. And what Ellison has tried to do in his writings in Juneteenth and in Invisible Man was to try to show that you don't get a people like this with many qualities, many virtues and attributes without it being a two-way street in the United States. That there were things that the American Negro didn't, wasn't just responding to, but was actually judging, discerning, sifting. I like this, I don't like that. I'm going to adopt this, I'm going to reject that. Even in slavery times, even in segregation times, that blacks weren't simply the, the punching dummy of white American society, but we're actually bobbing and dodging, getting in a few digs, but being, above all, prudent about how they dealt with their situation as a numerical minority in a country that seemed to think that race was all that. And so we see that, I think, writ large in this sermon. What does he, uh, how, how, how do you see any examples of that in this sermon? This idea of agency, this idea of... Uh, Sifting what American society is, is, is throwing at them, and, and again, being discerning, judging, making decisions. Go ahead. Well, you know, his, his solution to this whole having the black race actually go through a funeral and be buried, or the bones, the dry bones, they aren't brought up, they rise up. So he's giving the black um, Americans credit for their own rebirth. Yeah. This is not something handed to them or done for them. This is something that they did, reborn into who we are today. And it is not a result of what somebody else did for us. Okay. It's a result of who we are. Who we are, but again, um, there is some, it's symbiotic, right? Well, it's, course, it's, it's, it's not something that is ex nihilo. They, they just, no. just pull out from nowhere. Right. Uh, they're actually drawing some strength from American society. What's the clearest example of that in this chapter? 
What is the what is the obvious thing they learned while they were in the United States? Christianity. Christianity. Yes. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, right? Famous, most probably the most famous uh, observer of American politics and society, said here was a key institution in America: Christianity, the Church. Uh, when you strip a people of their language, of their culture, of their religion, and all that goes into what we mean by culture, what we understand by that term. Uh, what is left but to make new decisions, new choices, accept certain things, reject other things. Now, did the Christianity that was on display in the United States it, uh, live up to what, the, uh, what, what most of you know about the Bible? Okay, now... Now, what did the Negro do to use Ellison's locution? He actually liked that term, Negro, because there was something distinctively American about that. He did not see that as a pejorative term. Uh, what they learned, right, was that, yes, Christianity taught us the word, God's word. They were persuaded by it, right, adopted it as their own, but were not confused or thrown by the fact that the preaching of the word didn't always produce the practice of the word. What other word might they have heard? And I emphasize the word heard, because remember when he says that the Negro gets chopped up and ground into the ground almost to nothing, but what's the one thing that survives? Do you remember? What part of the body does he say rebirth starts with? The ear. The nerve of the ear, right? Why the ear? I would argue that it indicates listening, hearing what is said, not so much seeing the gap of what from what is, what is said and what is done, but actually hearing Truth, recognizing hypocrisy when they see it, recognizing when the truth that is preached isn't always practiced, but recognizing the truth for what it is, the truth, which he equates to light. So the rebirth begins with the ear. They heard American Christianity. What else did they hear, fundamentally? Not only our religion, but our... <coughs> our ideology, a little more specific? Declaration. Yeah, the Declaration of Independence. In other words, our politics... Okay, right? So, Almighty God, but the word from Him is not just the revealed word, but the word revealed through men, which is not just the Bible, but the American Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the statement, all men are created equal. So what, what Ellison invests in the black American experience is not simply right, the sum and substance of their victimization by an oppressive race, the white man. In the midst of oppression, as Ellison put it somewhat crudely, but this is right to the heart of his point, they did not go the way of the Indian. The red man, according to Ellison, that's what he called it, right? The Indian saw white civilization and said, Pah, we don't want to have anything to do with it. They resisted it. What happened? Precisely because they were numerically outnumbered. They got run over, right? What happened to blacks? They thrived in spite of oppression whether enslavement, whether black codes, Jim Crow, segregation. They found a way to make a life, as Ellison called it, on the horns of the white man's dilemma. They found a way to prosper in the midst of a very ticklish situation, walking that tightrope in the United States. And they did it by holding on to these two things, America's religion and, I would say broadly stated, America's religion and America's politics. That's how they found their rebirth. That's how they rebuilt uh, themselves as a people. 
uh, not only rebuilding themselves, but actually, according to Ellison, making their own contribution to what it means to be an American. Uh, there's a statement in this chapter where he talks about perhaps we will become uh, the true, uh, how does he put it? Something about uh, a true or a new people. Hold on a second while I try to find this one. Look at page, uh, well, my page 128 at the top. If you look at the top page numbers, not the bottom ones, 128. The paragraph begins, Amen, Reverend Bliss. We were owned and faced with the awe-inspiring labor of transforming God's word into a lantern that in darkness we'd know where we were. Do you know where that paragraph is? Mm-hmm. You see that? Go to the middle. Ah, yes. He means for us to be a new kind of human. Maybe we won't be that people, but we'll be a part of that people. We'll be an element in them. Amen. What is this new people? A true American? Maybe. A new American, an American that doesn't just preach, but practices what they preach? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Raymond. Go. Do you think that there's a little bit of sarcasm or condemnation of the fact that God is testing them? I, I kind of read that in that way. Well, you know, like, he wants a well-tested people to work his way in and will need to wait over time or eventually be accepted. Kind of the uh, philosophy that Booker T. Washington had. Is, do you think in a way that he might be critical of um, that type of so the, the, the words of this reverend are to be taken somewhat ironically, you mean? Yes. It's a, more of a parody rather than a true conviction that is being expressed? In a sense, I, I, I see that. I, I think definitely, Ellison is most, one of the most ironic writers out there. Uh, his irony usually was directed towards the gap between profession and practice, between ideal and what was actually done on the street. Uh, so let me just throw that question back. How, how, how do others read it? Do, is this reverend really preaching what he believes here, or in his preaching this message, is he really kind of uh, critiquing uh, Booker T. Washington's more accommodationist uh, uh, approach? Well, I think maybe he sees maybe this preacher's um, stance as being that the old way of looking at Booker T.'s, whereas he's emphasizing the youth, the youth, reminding them. Maybe he's trying to say, we're taking what you gave us, and we're going to go a different direction. Okay, but remember, this isn't this uh, sermon preached by an older yes, so preacher to a younger one, and he's, he has to tell them their story, right? Because they don't know the story. We were from Africa? What was it like in Africa? Uh, so how do we put that together? Well, I was kind of wondering the same thing, because he talks at a certain point about what we're going through now is in preparation for bigger things. Oh, okay, good. And so, to me, I was like, is he, is he asking... You know, we're, we have to go through this suffering right now. It's maybe okay right now, but because it's going to prepare us to be better and bigger later on. Hold on to that word. Uh, I want to get back to that. What, what Ellison means or invests in that word or concept, preparation, uh, I think is, is crucial. In the back. Uh, we, we, we tend to find that uh, historically African-American, um, the, the preaching, the, the storytelling, the song, um, is always a double meaning. There's always a, an alternative meaning to everything that is said. It has an interpretation for the black man, and it has an, a facial, superficial interpretation for the white man. Masking, right. It, it is masked throughout the time. Um, this whole, you know, Ellison's writing is, is specific for an audience of, of, of the black, the Negro. And 
primarily. That's how I see it myself. But he's dealing with an uphill climb because he's having to deal with this the, the historiography that predominant up until that time, the likes of which, for instance, U.B. Phillips, um, who, who taints the whole idea of what the black man is. Mm -hmm. Good. Good. Getting back to your initial question about uh, Booker T. Washington and this piece that we're looking at right now, aren't they both kind of talking about education? Educating the African American and making that their, their light to get out of um, oppression well, and... What do we learn right at the start of this chapter, in the first few pages at least, not so much from the protagonist who's looking back at this as something silly, but in the actual words of the preacher that he's recounting, uh, the guy who actually raised him up uh, from his youth, what do we learn at the beginning about education? Where ought black Americans, to, upon what should they rely to know who they are? Their history told by? Their elders. Yeah, their elders. He says, we've got to tell this thing true. Emphasis on the word we. Apparently, the other story that's out there <laughs> hasn't been quite capacious enough, right? Uh, it hasn't quite taken into account all of these contributions that have been made by blacks, uh, all of the uh, virtues that they have uh, practiced in order to survive and even thrive in the midst of a very difficult uh, uh, crucible and pressure cooker. I actually kind of felt that there was an essential difference between what Ellison is saying here and what I heard from Booker T. Washington. I might be missing something here, but um, I was looking at 129 mm -hmm. there at the top. Maybe do with what you have so as to get what you need. That kind of sounds like Booker T. Washington as far as take what you can get and go as far as you can get. Sure. Learn to look at what you see and not what somebody tells you is true. Oh, that's, that's sounding a bit different because it sounded to me like Booker T. Washington was really buying into this, you know, don't go farther than you really can, accept your limits and don't go beyond. And that's not, doesn't seem to be what he's saying here. Pay lip service to Caesar if you have to, but put your trust in God because nobody has a patent on truth or copyright on the best way to live and serve Almighty God. Learn from what we've lived. Remember that when the labor is backbreaking and the bossman's mean, our singing can lift us up. That sounds very different from Booker T. Washington. Okay. To me, you seem to be much more not let something lift you out of the drudgery, but accept the drudgery as the best that life has to offer in your rightful place and live with it. I'm going to hold my comments on Washington until tomorrow, because we'll actually look at the exposition address, among other things, and then you know, compare it with what Du Bois says, among others. Uh, and so let's, let's uh, equip ourselves to have that conversation tomorrow when we actually have that in front of us. Um, good. In, the back. in another spot, he makes the comment that uh, we can bend and snap back into place, which implies go with the flow when you have to, but that doesn't mean that it always has to be that way. What, yeah, what does it also say about blacks? They aren't... Go ahead. Yes! I mean, there's a great theme. I'm, one of my favorite chapters in this book, and I hope Judge, our discussion of this chapter leads you to go out and buy uh, the book, Juneteenth, uh, is, I think, chapter 15 or 16, uh, a chapter I entitled, or I call, since he doesn't have titles on them, uh, The American Circus. He describes a scene where the protagonist in this chapter, who's now a race-baiting senator, right? he's a kid who passes for white, uh, who, 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 is, who grows up in a southern black community, but finds himself troubled by the fact that he sees blacks 
being the victims of white people. Well, Reverend Bliss, uh, excuse me, uh, Reverend Hickman takes Bliss to a circus, and he watches as these clowns come out into this ring. One clown, they're all white, but one clown has a burnt cork on. He's in blackface, and he's a dwarf. There's one black clown and six or seven white clowns. And the comedic routine, of course, you, I, I, if I ask you, I'm pretty sure you know how to fill out the rest of this statement. The comedic routine is watching these white clowns torque on, uh, beat on uh, the black clown, the apparently black clown. Little Bliss looks up at his adopted father, and he sees him laughing, but he's also crying. I laugh to keep from crying. Uh, and, and the reverend doesn't understand why Bliss doesn't get it. it. This is all in fun, they're just joking around, whatever, and little Bliss is just getting angry, and he asks him, well, how come the, how come the black clown doesn't hit back? Right? Uh, what's interesting is the way Ellison depicts the, the, the black clown is, even though he's getting beat, he's doing flips, acrobatic somersaults, um, he's running really fast, and part of the routine is, out of his drawers, out pops hams, a flower sack, uh, and Ellison is essentially telling the story of black America in that one scene. That in the midst of oppression, what is the black man doing? Is he merely just falling over, bleeding to death? No, he's resilient. He's productive, right? Uh, Little Bliss can't handle that. He wants a clown that, well, I don't care if I'm outnumbered. I want to hit back. And the whole point, of course, I think one of the points that Ellison is saying is blacks at least were smart enough, unlike the Indian. Blacks were smart enough to know when you're in the minority... <laughs> can't hit back or else you will disappear. You will go the way of the Indian. Uh, Marcus Garvey, among others, argued that it's precisely because blacks were outnumbered in the United States that the only alternative was to leave and go somewhere else. The argument for immigration, the back to Africa movement, was in, was in great part due to the fact that blacks were becoming successful at the turn of the century, were seeking to fulfill their ambition, and Marcus Garvey foresaw a collision coming up. He actually thought there was going to be a depression, imagine that, in the 1920s. He says, you know, right now when times are okay, whites will put up with black people who are attorneys, doctors, teachers, etc. But Marcus Garvey had a very uh, kind of Malthusian view of the world. It was a fixed pie, and he says, when there comes a time when there are starving mouths to feed, when their jobs are not plentiful, guess what's going to happen? Race war. And it's going to be a massacre. And you whites should be smart enough to help us uh, blacks find a way to get out of here before that conflagration takes place. How did I get into Marcus Garvey? Somebody reel me back. Impossible. Go ahead. You had your hand up. Well, I was just thinking, you know, that it, it all does go back to, like, this whole thing where he says you know, about the power that they have or whatever. It, it's my favorite line, really, is trust the inner beat that tells us who we are. I mean, I think that sums up a lot of what he says in that chapter, is that, you know, we know we have this um, power within us. We're doing better. It's preparing us for how things yeah, are. Yeah, getting back to that word, thanks for reminding me of that word, preparation. Uh, this, is a, this is something that's right out of Fred Douglas as well. Uh, the idea for Ellison was, he says, no Supreme Court case like the Brown Board of Education decision, no law like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, no legal magic is going to create 
a, an excellent black American citizen. What's going to happen is, before those changes take place, as we work for those changes, what had we better be doing on the home front? It's taking care of the business that we can take care of. Preparing so that when we get to go into desegregated schools, we, de we deliver. So that when we get to vote, when we get to vie for the same jobs as whites have been able to vie for, uh, we can show what we've prepared ourselves to do. That we weren't going to wait for any legal, as he called it, magic to somehow transform us into virtuous human beings and citizens. That there was something, even within that limited sphere of action, there was something that we as black Americans could be doing as we work towards legal reform, as we work to change public opinion about blacks, as we do these things, we're getting our act together so that when they get their act together, we'll be ready when the time comes. Uh, Dennis, did you have your hand up about an hour ago? <laughs> Just think on uh, 1.30, on the top 1.30. Sure. So the next, uh, it's a single line paragraph because it's the question, how do we know who we are, Daddy Hickman? Mm -hmm. And then part of the answer, interestingly enough, is where we are. Sort of the mantra of where we are. And then he says, we know who we are because when we make the beat of our rhythm to shape our day, the whole land says amen. And then later on he goes, let those who will despise you. But remember, deep down inside yourself, that the life we have to lead is but a preparation for other things. Mm -hmm. It's a discipline. Yes, another key word. Go ahead. Habit of the mind. A discipline through which we may see that that which the others are too self-blinded to see. Time will come round when we'll have to be their eyes. Interesting. Time will swing and turn back around, I tell you. Time shall swing and spiral back around. And the next word is no. The That's right. He snaps out of his reverie, as That's it were. Right. Uh, can you give us a quick translation of that very lyrical passage? What, uh, what, what kind of future, in other words, does it could be in the offing? Does it necessarily have to work out this way? And that's a big question for us. Has it worked out that way? But what possible future does the Reverend foresee that would be to the redound to the glory? Uh, to the praise of black America. If not co-equal leadership, at a minimum, then dominance in the, in the sense of the moral and the uh, political aspects for the future. Yeah, it, it, it's as if he suggests that there might come a time where whites will forget the words to their own political hymns. And the ones that, the ones that will have to remind them, or will, we could be prepared to remind them about the truth will be the ones that whites were trying to oppress and maybe even snuff out. That there might, uh, wouldn't that be in the, in, in the providence of God, right? This is something that's very providential. It's not just about man working. They believe that they are working in concert with God. Unfortunately, right now, God has them in the pressure cooker, right? It's, they're in the crucible, right? The Hebrews, uh, they were enslaved for hundreds of years and then God delivered them in the same way something might happen uh, in, in black America. Wouldn't it be 
truly awesome, right? full of awe, awe-inspiring. If there came a point in time where America needed to be saved and the first one's up to bat, knowing how to do it, having the resources personally, right? character, mind, the principles, the convictions to save the country, wouldn't it be truly awesome if God allowed it by his grace to be blacks to save white America from their own self-blindedness? Irony of ironies. Uh, Closing comments. I want to bring bring our our time to a close and then we'll shift gears uh, to uh, the other main theme that we'll be dealing with in the next three days. Um, I had never been to one, and I, you know, I heard about it, and I knew about it, but um, there really weren't very many people there, um, black community, but there was the mayor's wife, and she was a lady, and she got up his phone, and uh, they read the proclamation, and sang, and prayed, and I was actually with a group of teachers, and uh, we all descended kind of on this place, and we looking around, but it was really nice. Yeah, uh... It's um, yeah, it's a holiday that has fluctuated in terms of uh, its resonance with uh, blacks as well as whites, for that matter. But especially among blacks, um, I have I have every year more and more states actually pass either a state holiday or some sort of commemorative action uh, with regards to Juneteenth. Uh, I, I wrote an op-ed once, actually a couple times on this subject, where um, I thought through a little bit about the significance of Juneteenth, whether it was a good thing for us to have, as it were, a different holiday. You know, is it good that we have a national, or at least professedly national Independence Day, July 4th, but, and then have this, in some sense, a rival Independence Day, in the same way we have a national anthem, and then we've got this one by James Weldon Johnson, uh, which was actually played a few years ago at the uh, All-Star Game, in, in uh, the basketball also, they played the national anthem, and then they played the Negro national anthem. I don't know if they've made that uh, a custom now. I didn't see the, the All-Star game this year. But I know a few years ago, I was like, whoa, that's Alicia Keys singing the, na- the uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Wow, that's curious. <laughs> uh, uh, next time around, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll be self-serving and show you my little Christian Science Monitor op-ed. Uh, and I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a little unsettled by this kind of rival concept, uh, precisely because of the, of the question of what it means to be American. Is that something that's racial or something that's more abstract in principle, something that's more universal that applies to people? Well, that's why it was cool when we all went, because predominantly we were white, you know, and, and it was just neat to be there and mix in, and, and, you know, I'm sure the black community really wasn't used to a bunch of white people showing up. <laughs> Who but, sent you an invitation? Yeah, but, yeah, I, you know, I, Yeah, this whole question of, of uh, remember when those jackets, members only, were really popular? Am I dating myself? <laughs> remember those things, those kind of trippy flaps on the shoulders? That for some reason, that was cool. Um, that's what's at stake here, isn't it? Members only? What, what does it take to get into this club we call America? Is it this? This? What, what is it exactly? And what is it that we're teaching our students about this question? I hope at least we're teaching the debate about what that means, starting with the founders, moving through its testing through the Civil War, and seeing how it plays out in the 20th century. Uh, one more comment, and then I'll introduce our next instructor. Just one more thing. Um, I think it's really important to 
kind of ties in with what you were saying about the playing uh, the magnetic or the Negro national anthem. Uh, when Black History Month comes up, when Women's History Month, and I yeah. do my bulletin board that way, and every February and every March, the kids go, well, why do we have Black History Month, or why is there Women's History Month? And, and I try to give them an explanation that uh, 11 months out of the year tend to be dedicated to white male history. <laughs> go ahead and read your text, go through your textbook and, and do the, the math there. But I, I said it, it's not to detract from what uh, anybody else has done, it's just to emphasize um, what others have done that we don't see throughout. Yes, some, somehow, uh, at, at minimum at least, at face value, at minimum, it's a claim that there's a neglected voice, a neglected contribution here, and that in the best of all worlds, uh, there would be a truly American history, right. not what we call American history and then black American history, right. to kind of fill that out, that somehow we should be able to tell the story true. But to tell the story true, we're going to have to listen to all the voices and hear all the stories to see right. what the real story was. Uh, yeah, I, I think Ellison is trying to tackle that, among other issues, in his book, uh, Juneteenth. Um, that's it. All right, let me give a very... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think Ellison does a great job of taking the um, power away from the whites of when the blacks will be free and putting it in God's hands. Because on like 129, he says, um, pay lip service to Caesar if you, if you must, but put your trust in God. Uh-huh. So he puts it in God there. Then on the one 131, he says um, something about... Sorry, I'm going to paraphrase it. But um, man's plans are all like a joke, saying that. Yeah, uh, again, uh, one way to think about this is what if the black in America didn't believe in the Christian God and all of those attributes that we learn from the Bible and all of those expectations that we learn of the church, how people are to live. Think back to the second inaugural, right? With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on finish the work we are in. Um, I think Ellison, is, Ellison discovered something between writing Invisible Man and writing Juneteenth. He, I, I believe he came to a greater appreciation of American Christianity, even though he himself was not a believer. Um, in, if you read uh, Invisible Man, a fairly lengthy novel, about 580 some odd pages, um, the references to Christianity and Bible reading, etc., the church, the black church, are not positive references for the most part. Uh, you get to Juneteenth, and it's all about a born-again black preacher raising what he hopes to be a savior for both white and black America uh, and how that hope actually gets dashed. Uh, I won't say how it gets dashed because that would jeopardize what we're going to do tomorrow morning. Uh, <laughs> hope that piques your interest. Uh, but I think he grew to learn something about what Christianity did or what at least it promoted in terms of the salvation of blacks, not just in terms of the hereafter, but in terms of the here and now as citizens. It enabled them to, as it were, absorb the blows in hopes of something better. Uh, as, as Frederick Douglass said when he was watching Lincoln during the Civil War, we believed while we ached and bled. Hard to do. And we'll see that that's in a way a forecast of our discussion of the Martin Luther King uh, approach of, of, of civil disobedience and uh, nonviolence. Uh, all right, our speaker.
It has a whopping 30 seconds to speak. <laughs> More than 30 seconds. Uh, Charles Kessler is Professor of Government and Director of the Henry Salvatore Center at Claremont McKenna College, my alma mater. Do you wonder how that happened? He's Vice Chairman of the James Madison Commemoration Advisory Committee and a member of the Thomas Jefferson Sally Hemings Scholars Commission. He's the editor of uh, the edition of the Federalist Papers, as you well know, that we studied uh, last week in Philadelphia. Uh, editor of and contributor to Saving the Revolution, the Federalist Papers and the American Founding. Uh, contributor to the Encyclopedia of the American Constitution and has written, written widely on the subject of citizenship, civility, the Constitution, and uh, one of the topics this week, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Dr. Kessler was the man who dissuaded me from writing my honors thesis as a senior uh, on civil disobedience, comparing Thoreau and Lincoln. I don't know if he remembers this, but he said, don't write on that. No one's done anything decent about the second inaugural address. Why don't you try writing on that? You guys know about this because we've talked about it in great detail <laughs> yesterday. I ended up writing 70 pages on four paragraphs. Okay? There's a difference between my prose and Lincoln's. <laughs> uh, he, it was because of uh, Dr. Kessler in, in great part that I ended up not going to law school but rather to graduate school. Uh, to keep on researching Lincoln, and that uh, thesis that I wrote as an undergraduate became the culminating chapter of my uh, PhD dissertation, and ultimately a book, Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. Uh, and I'm, uh, when we were thinking about who I would co-teach in Philadelphia, who I would co-teach with in uh, uh, Gettysburg, who would I co-teach uh, about the 20th century, um, first person I thought about, especially for the subject of uh, progressivism, uh, and its consideration and view of the American founding uh, was my esteemed professor, Charles Kessler. Please welcome him now. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Lucas. As I, I tried my best to keep Lucas uh, honest and away from law school. Uh, and... Uh, I must say I'm uh, filled with uh, pride and admiration at seeing what a wonderful teacher uh, he has become. I know, of course, what a great uh, scholar he is, but uh, to see him in action is very impressive. Um, well, uh, on the other hand, he, he's left me nine minutes. Um, we're ending at 8:30, so I, I don't want. I don't think I want to launch into anything big. Um, but let me let me therefore just say a few things. We can then pick up on tomorrow, late tomorrow night when we'll be meeting again. Uh, for some reason, I'm uh, I'm always at the tail end of uh, these uh, sessions. But um, I want to say something um, about the you might say the problem of um, <clears throat> um, the Civil War, uh, American. Politics, American political thought after uh, the Civil War, since that's really the transition you're making in this Presidential Academy from from the the world of the founding and then the great, you might say, internal crisis of the American founding played out in the Civil War to the the legacy of those things in the late 19th century and particularly in the 20th century and right up till um, today. Um, so let, let me say some things sort of merely preparatory 
for actually looking at the texts and dealing with the issues that come tomorrow. Let me begin by saying that in, in many ways, you know, the, as Woodrow Wilson says, um, the nation that went into the Civil War was not the same as the nation that came out of the Civil War. Um, in the life of a nation, as in the life of a human being, some events are so big or cut so deeply that they change you. Uh, whether you want them to change you or not, you can be changed by them. Uh, and there's no going back. There's no unremembering what you went through. Uh, and so how to put America back together after the Civil War, what to think about America, what to think about American citizenship and what it is to be an American, all these issues are really up for grabs. Uh, and in a way, the Civil War settles certain important and central questions in American politics, but in another way, it really opens many more questions about what it is to be um, an American. Uh, let me just confine my remarks to asking this question. When you came after the Civil War, if you lived through it, and to some degree even more so if you're born after the Civil War in America, um, you, the immediate question is how to think about it. What was that? What was it all about? Was it worth it? And if so, why? And broadly speaking, I think there were sort of four reactions to the, the trauma and the drama of the Civil War and the tragedy of the Civil War. Um, one school of thought, and this probably uh, in many ways was the broadest based, the most popular, of course saw the Civil War as um, a vindication of right over wrong, that a great wrong had been um, committed in American history, in American politics, and the Civil War was in some sense um, a coming to terms with and an overcoming that, that legacy of, uh, of, uh, of unrighteousness. This view didn't go very far in the South. <laughs> but, but it nonetheless was, a, uh, I think, a very popular view. But there are two versions of it, at least. Um, there is the, the version one can find in the second inaugural, um, which, is, which sees the, the, tra- the experience of the Civil War, the tragedy of the Civil War, as an, a sort of expiation of a common sin, a sin that North and South had joined uh, in committing, and that it was uh, an element of a kind of spiritual rebirth uh, for the Union. But there was also the view which saw the Civil War not as the expiation of a common sin, but as the punishment of a Southern sin. That is, the the second sort of uh, view would be a, a form of triumphalism. And this shows you that right tri triumphs over wrong, or at least can triumph over wrong, and did triumph over wrong. And certainly some, not all, of the so-called radical Republicans who drive Reconstruction policy or try to drive Reconstruction policy uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war have this view, right, that they got what they deserved and now uh, they're going to get more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
because we're going to have to reconstruct them. All right, both of those fall into that first category of, of right over wrong. The second, a second way of looking at the experience of the Civil War is very different. And I don't think it was necessarily shared by many, but, it was sh- but a few important thinkers saw it this way. And most important among them probably uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the famous uh, Supreme Court justice and uh, sort of legal reformer. Uh, from this point of view, the Civil War was not a vindication of right or righteousness, much less righteousness. It was a vindication of strength over weakness. What it showed was um, that um, superior marksmanship (laughs) is what decides wars. It's power. The Civil War was a question of power. And whichever side could wage total war more effectively, more thoroughly, even more ruthlessly, would win this war. And the North had the advantage, the Union had the advantage, of course, of having a larger industrial base, a greater population, uh, the use of the seas for commerce and trade, many material advantages going in, which the Confederacy was never able to overcome. Uh, It may be that the South had better generals, uh, but the North had uh, eventually at least had adequate ones, pretty good ones, uh, and it had much greater staying power. Um, in the battle, on the battlefield. For Oliver Wendell Holmes, at least, and for others, this second view of the war was entirely amoral. He, of course, fought with distinction on the part of the Union. He was wounded three times in Civil War conflict, in Civil War battles. But he did not think that he had been wounded for the sake of um, freedom or righteousness. But he had had the luck to be on the side of the the winning army in this conflict. Now, one current, which you're going to hear a lot more about tomorrow and and subsequently, uh, a new current in American intellectual thought fed into this view of the war as a kind of struggle, as a realpolitik exercise. And this new intellectual current is Darwinism. Darwin's Origin of Species was published in 1859 on the eve of the Civil War uh, right after the Lincoln-Douglas debates, if you want to situate it. Um, ten years later, in 1869, it, had, uh, it was being taught in American colleges and universities. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a very thoroughgoing Darwinian, saw the Civil War exactly in those terms. This was a a contest for a struggle for existence between two different social systems. And the fittest, or the fitter, in this case, won and survived. And the evidence that it was fitter was not that its moral preachments or its, um, you know, the high tone of its moral life was better than the opponent's. The evidence of its superiority was the fact that it survived and the other did not. It was the fittest. The survival of the fittest means whoever survives must be fittest. And the North survived and the South did not. And that's really the only existential meaning of the conflict. Now, there's yet a third reaction to the war, a way of looking 
um, at the war. And that was the, it was this third school that, um, to which Woodrow Wilson belonged, I would say, and which most of the progressives belonged. And they tended to see the Civil War, again, not so much as the victory of right over wrong, but converting that into a different kind of language, as a victory, over, as a victory of the future over the past. Freedom belonged to the future, to a better world, both materially better, richer, you know, replete with scientific advances and so forth, and a morally better world. And in, in stamping out the Confederacy and slavery, this was not so much, you might say, a timeless conflict of good and evil. It was, in fact, the destruction of an anachronism. Slavery was already outdated. Slavery was, uh, around the world, had, was being abandoned or had been, for the most part, had been abandoned. The United States was one of the few countries in the world, certainly the only major country in the world, that still had a, um, uh, a, a, a legal system of uh, chattel slavery at this point. I mean, there are there's still, of course, the Russian serfs and other forms of bondage, but not slavery per se. And for them... Um, you, you might say, what's the relation between thinking of this as a conflict between the future and the past and thinking about it as a conflict between the, the right and the wrong? Those two sets of terms map over each other, but they're obviously not quite the same thing because the progressive view is that the, to the future belongs the right. That is, uh, righteousness triumphs inevitably or eventually in the end. And therefore, the move from half-slave and half-free to all-free is a move forward in history. It's, it's in some ways like uh, uh, a scientific discovery that is then propagated, taught, and institutionalized. This way, and getting rid of slavery was, in a way, a victory of truth over ignorance, or at least of, of uh, progress over reaction. And the, finally, the fourth way, I'm already over time. <laughs> the fourth way of looking at the war was as a, a tragedy. Not a triumph, or at least certainly not a complete triumph, uh, nor a complete expiation, but as a fleeting moment in which the promise of the American founding for black as well as white seemed to be on the verge of being realized. But that promise, as we're going to be hearing in the next couple of days and discussing in the next couple of days, was for black Americans in particular left unredeemed. I mean, it would be hard to imagine it, you say, after, right after Appomattox, <clears throat> after the destruction of the slave system, and particularly after the 13th and 14th Amendments have been passed, and, or if you add all of them in, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments have been passed after the Civil War. It's hard to imagine that this society, which seemed to be <clears throat> pregnant with a, uh, you know, a, a true new birth of freedom for black as well as white, would, would find itself 
giving birth not to a society of, of racial equality and opportunity, but to a new form of uh, official legal segregation and discrimination, in va- not in every state of the Union, but in many states of the Union. I mean, it's, it, it would be hard to put, your, put yourself in the mindset um, of a freed slave, <clears throat> or for that matter, a freed black, already free, in 1868. Uh, and to imagine uh, the hope that you would probably have had and how your hopes would have been shattered 20 years later when you saw what, in fact, the legal consequence of the war turned out to be. In some ways, of course, even under Jim Crow, (coughs) blacks were better off than they had been under slavery. But as compared with where they had every reason to believe they would be, and where they had every reason to think they should be, where they actually ended up had to be a bitter, bitter disappointment. Why was the Civil War fought then? What had it brought the captive people for whom eventually um, the war had been uh, dedicated? Well, uh, the final thing I'll say, just to sort of wrap this up, is... um, There's another much smaller problem, but still a a crucial problem from our point of view when looking back at this material. And that's not just the shadow that the Civil War cast, which is, of course, immense, but the shadow that Lincoln cast. Imagine being the next president after Lincoln, or even the second or third or fourth president coming after Lincoln. How do you live up to that act? How, what, what is the statesman's task after Lincoln has established a kind of new benchmark of American statesmanship? What was to be done now? Uh, the Civil War had already been fought. Uh, you didn't want to fight another one. But what then is the purpose of American politics and of American statesmanship? If the formal equality, if the original sin of slavery had in some sense been atoned for or blotted out, what was left to accomplish in American politics that could be called noble or great? Of course, dealing with the problems after Reconstruction uh, posed some serious tasks for American statesmanship, tasks which most statesmen ducked in the decades um, after the war. But still, looking beyond even that issue, what was the purpose of America, now that the promise of freedom had been made and and not quite redeemed, but nonetheless had been to some degree vindicated in the course of that war. What were the next great challenges for American politics? And to put a final uh, polish on that question, after you have more or less guaranteed formal equality under the law, to Americans. Is that it? Is formal equality enough? What about the difference between rich and poor? What about the difference between immigrant and native born Americans? What about the the differences between 
a world of, shaped by the family farm and a world shaped by modern industrial conglomerates and corporations. Um, what did the Declaration of Independence mean for those issues? What did the Constitution have in store for those issues? These are the kinds of questions that the progressives turn to and the kind of questions that American politics revolves around for the next hundred years. All right, thanks. I'll stop there.